Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's you here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back, everyone, to what is once again here towards the end of the month, uh, the Chirp Audiobooks Book Club Pick, which for this month is going to be the last stand of the Tin Can Sailors, which... Honestly, do you have no idea how many times people have suggested from like YouTube video comments in TikTok comments in everything that like we need to tell this story and it is a fun story. It is a good story. But in my personal opinion, I was never satisfied with the short videos of it. Like when I would make the uh, when I would make the short form videos for it on TikTok or YouTube shorts or anything like that, there's just so much detail that goes into this battle, but it's not even really a battle. It's a segment of a battle that became its own battle that had not necessarily as big of an effect on the wide scheme of the war, but it was a monumental thing. It was a big deal, and it was a heroic last stand by this group of sailors taking on the Japanese, like almost the entirety of what was left of the Japanese Navy at the like in the climax of the Pacific theater of World War II. I say climax, there's a number of different points that could be argued as being that, but this, this is a lot. I know I'm rambling. I know I'm going on in different parts about this, but it really is something that is a lot. And I truly have no idea what this book is about, so I'm just here for the ride. Okay, all right, all right, all right. So Thoroughly underprepared. Before we begin, always as a reminder, if you do not watch us on YouTube, if you want to visually see this podcast, then please go over to History of Everything podcast, which is our channel on YouTube. There's going to be a link in the description. If you want to support this channel, if you want to make sure that you can get episodes ad free, go check out our Patreon for a dollar a month. You can get ad free episodes as well as bonus episodes that is put out on there. And there are other bonuses depending on the level that you get. Also, buy our coffee because it's really damn good it coffee. It really is good. Yes. And I'm not just saying that because I need coffee to survive. You kind of do. I do. It's like the day before Thanksgiving. I worked all day. I work tomorrow. And I'm recording podcasts in the time that I'm not working. So, yep. obviously, I am doing great. <laughs> and then I've spent all day recording videos and then editing videos and then writing more videos. But it's Literally. fun. We're not complaining. I'm just a little bit tired. <laughs> no, I completely understand that. But anyway, on to today's story, because I think we really need to uh, to get into it. So the context of this, what this is, the story of, is one of the key decisive battles when America was going back to reclaim the Philippines. So previously, years earlier, the Japanese had invaded the, Philippine, uh, the Philippines and they had taken everything over, right? And during this time, there was a large series of guerrilla movements. It's honestly, I could do an entire thing on literally just the Philippines campaign in the first place. There are so many different campaigns, so many different war stories that we could go into and cover. And there's actually a lot of big movements. Like if you look at the Philippines today, a lot of the national pride that comes from the Philippines specifically came out of the movements that were arising during this period. So it's, it's a really big deal. 
But what happened in the case of the United States is that the United States was launching an ongoing campaign to free the Philippines when the atomic bombs were dropped and Japan surrendered at the end of World War II. Our story today takes place during the course of that campaign that was still ongoing when the bombs were dropped. So this happened at the end? Kind of towards the end. This is 1944. This is late October. It's it's like October going into November. This is this is late 1944. And only a year later, things would be over. So okay. this is towards the end of things. Okay. Mind you, by this time, you look over on the Western Front, what's going on with Germany, and they are constantly at this point getting pushed back by the Soviets. It is not good. Everything for the Axis is collapsing in on itself at this point. Really, by this time, the Japanese knew that the war was not in their favor and that they were more than likely going to lose. So there was a whole series of things that were being done. They wanted to make the end of the war as bloody and as awful for the Allies as they possibly could. Okay, but if they knew it was the end of the war, why... Why let more people die? For negotiation. So I want you to think about this. If you just surrendered, like outright total surrender from the beginning Oh, so they didn't want to face really bad repercussions. They were going to bleed it out. So by forcing more blood to be shed, the idea was to bring the allies to the negotiation table at this point. For most officers, it was like that. There were still some diehards that believed like, no, with indomitable spirit, we will be able to win. Most people accepted that their goal at this point was to blunt as much damage for Japan as possible by creating as much damage as they could for the Allies. Because if you can limit their power, then they're going to want to end the war earlier and go to the negotiation table so that Japan may not get punished as badly as it would otherwise. Honestly, I'm not saying what they did was right, but I get it. No, it's Which a is a it's, lot of history. It's like, I get it. I yeah, it's a negotiation tactic. It's the, it's the reason why they did. So what they were doing at this point, you have October 15th, 1944, they launched something called Operation Shoal, right? So this is the Imperial Navy's first mobile fleet that launches this, which was a last-ditch effort to try and engage the Allied naval forces that were off of Leyte, which was in the central Philippines decisively. Like, they wanted to engage and destroy as much of the fleet as they possibly could, do some serious damage, and that maybe if this doesn't delay the attacks that are going to be coming to the Japanese home islands, that it's going to cause the Allies to pause for a while. Maybe at that point, further negotiations could happen. Maybe something else would would occur. We don't... It's up to the interpretation of what it is that they wanted to do. But following the battle that was on the 24th of October, which was the Battle of Sibuyan Sea, you had the powerful Japanese 1st Division attack force, which was center force, that appeared to be retiring westward. However, this was not the case. It was a trick. They were actually going to then resume their eastward passage, and they would break out of San Bernardino Strait, which was north of Samar, early the following day, heading southwards towards Leyte Gulf. You had the Japanese Northern Force, which was a carrier task force that had drawn Admiral William F. Halsley's U.S. Third Fleet north, and the heavy forces of Vice Admiral Thomas C. Kincaid's U.S. Seventh Fleet, they were engaged to the south of Leyte Gulf. What this left was only three Seventh Fleet escort carriers. A, no, not the carriers, but the, uh, the task units that were on the northern flank of the Leyte operational area. There, what they had been doing is providing a type of 
close air support and ASW screening for amphibious landings. The basic idea of this is that you have um you have these carriers that they're not big ones, mind you. They're not they're not extensive. They're designed to work as support vessels to be able to provide air support, uh, harassing maneuvers, scouting maneuvers, essentially anything where aircraft would be able to be utilized on a battlefield over a wide area so they could move and support different units as needed. And what would happen is that these vessels were moving in to support other fleets when they kind of faced a little bit of a surprise. Okay, what's the surprise? The Japanese. That's a good surprise. Banzai. Bad surprise? Bad, bad. <laughs> Definitely bad for them. Uh, though it was actually going to be bad for everyone overall. I well, have no idea the context of this story. It's and okay. I did not have time to read notes because I was at work all day. So It's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll explain it. The idea of it, of course, is that you know how you don't have, um, you're not going to have a fleet all in necessarily one specific spot, right? Like it's not some massive fleet that is heading in a singular direction. You have different vessels with different tasks. They're they're going after different targets, doing different, different things. They have different jobs, right. they're, but they're one unit. They're just right. performing different duties. Yeah. Right. So each one of these, the, the goal of what you want to do as a Navy is to attack isolated targets ones that will not be able to receive support from other vessels because they have to like you're on the ocean there is a wide area that things could be affected in or or not affected in um what's the word that i'm looking for there's a wide area where they could be there's a wide playing field it's like a wide range that anyone can be anywhere correct because it's the ocean, so it's literally thousands of miles, just like so in any I'm, direction. I'm assuming it's like, okay, so they all go into this open field, like let's say it's a field, and there's just like trees and brush and caves, and they can be hiding, so the units are all doing different like missions to clear them out. Yeah, but in this case, but on it's the, the water, ocean. But completely on the open, with nothing but the sky... Hey everyone, it's Takuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And copious amounts of death on the horizon. So what you had here was October, uh, in October, you had Rear Admiral Clifton Sprague, who had his, uh, his task force call sign Taffy 3, which was the most northwesterly task force. This was a small one. Wasn't a big thing. It was something that was made up of six small escort carriers. You had three destroyers. You had four destroyer escorts. And what they ended up coming across was something much bigger. What did they come across? Well, they got found by four Japanese battleships, which among them was the Yamato. Have I think I've told you a bit yeah, about the Yamato I think before. Yeah, we made a few videos about the Yamato. The biggest battleship to ever exist in history. Now, this was a super heavy battleship. But wasn't it the ship that it's basically like you put all of your resources into this one ship, which oh, yeah. made it a beast. But if that one ship sank, you'd be like... SOL. Correct. Also, it made itself a massive target because... 
obviously you'd want to take down the big one. It's like the boss, the yep. final boss. Like you're going to go straight for the final boss. Like if you can dodge all of the little minions, you're going straight for that. It's kind of the point here. A little bit of a side note. Um, I can think I've showed you when I'm playing like Total War or other things like that. There are some units in that that are giant units. They're really big. They're really scary. They're big targets. But they're really big targets. So you just align all of your ranged units on one target and you just watch their health bar bleed. The same thing applies in most games. If you're playing like, Overwatch, if I'm playing Overwatch, I target that The tank, tank gets targeted. That's the idea. I, I play tank, so I'm constantly dying. So I get it. <laughs> I mean, I understand super heavy battleships. Cool in theory. Like, yeah, let's throw all of these resources into it. It can do everything. Yeah, but. Except survive. Well. Literally, except survive. Anyway, we're kind of meaning, I'm, <laughs> we're, we're kind of blunting this because for them, the guys who are encountering this, this is terrifying, right? Because they have found the Yamato. They are also supported by six heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and 11 destroyers. So this is what the Japanese had. This is what the Japanese had. So they encountered So that. let's see. You had 11, uh, 2, so that's 13, 6, so that's 21, plus 4 battleships, that's 25. That's 25 ships, all of which are significantly bigger than what they had, like what the American forces had at the time. Which the American forces, when we had this, are 6 small escort carriers, right? 3 destroyers, so that's 9, and then four destroyer escorts. Okay, so that's 13. I just want to say. And they're almost smaller. It's 13 versus 25. We just, you guys haven't heard this podcast yet, but we recorded a podcast a few days ago where that was basically ja the Japanese at the World's Fair in 1893. Yes. And they were just now coming out of isolation, but they yep. came out of isolation with heavy gunpower. Oh, and they said, we're not taking any risks. We're taking all the prisoners. If and I could I talk about something insane. in the future, it would definitely be like, Japanese, uh, like modernization. Because what they did, like the actual... That was fast. Yes, they that was Because fast. this is 1940. They went 1890 to 1940. They were like heavy metal, heavy guns, all of the, all of the technology. I think it was what, 1873, if I recall correctly? With the Japanese and like the uh, beginning of the Meiji era and you had the Boshin conflict and the restoration of the emperors like the as the one big authority. But literally when they ended up having the uh, the 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 war with Russia in 1905, right, that war was literally 30 years or so after they just started modernizing. They went from sword versus gun, like sword meets gun, to we have the guns. Correct. That's huge. Okay, continue. It was. It was really big. I want to hear how, how they fare against all of this. Yeah. So, this is what they encountered. And then following the San Bernardino Strait Passage, the Japanese center force was still in its nighttime search disposition. You have these different ships that are in different modes of travel, effectively, because you're not going to be arrayed in battle formation like from the very beginning. That's not how it's going to work. So they have this position that is set up for nighttime searches when they're trying to identify potential targets. And at 0623, so 623 a.m., shortly after sunrise, and before the task force had fully shifted and transitioned from its daytime uh, or, or from its nighttime mode to its daytime anti-aircraft formation, because you have different formations, again, that in the daytime where ship or aircraft can easily spot you, you're going to need a different formation to make sure that your, your guys aren't all spread out so they can be just isolated and destroyed by aircraft, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I just learned that, but yes. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's like the premise. Though. That's the idea. So 
what happened is that Yamato made radar contact with USAW patrol aircraft, and then additional air contacts were followed and then fired upon until around 6.50 in the morning. So when the Japanese sighted what appeared to them, what they thought was a large U.S. task force of carriers and cruisers on the horizon, which they thought this was actually part of the third fleet, that was actually just this little Taffy 3 task force. Okay, so did you say what Taffy 3 was comprised of? Yes, this was this is the one that was literally made up of these six air, little aircraft carriers. Okay, the okay. Uh, The four destroyers. So just heavily outgunned. Way outgunned, way outnumbered. Like everything was underclassed here. Everything was underclassed in comparison. So the Japanese vice admiral, which was Takeo Kurita, he immediately then ordered his ships to move into a pursuit formation. They were going to go after him. But due to the fact that they were still shifting from their nighttime to daylight anti-aircraft positions, this order led to a whole bunch of confusion, which would create a bunch of issues for the Japanese because this meant that the fleet, rather than moving forward all at once and engaging them at the same time with decisive firepower, they started going in basically one by one in a little bit of a piecemeal fashion. Think of it like this. Do you remember the Battle of Thermopylae with the Spartans? And what happened where they specifically put themselves on that position in the mountain pass so that not in many of the Persian forces could get through. Only a limited number of men were able to meet them at any given time. So it didn't matter that they were outnumbered way, way heavily. I can't say I remember that mainly because I wasn't born yet, but sure. I hate you for that one. <laughs> I, 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 like, I do you remember? Do you remember? Yeah, I, I for sure. Yeah, it was just the other day. To bring back there. an old phrase of mine, you got to remember, Gabby. I don't. <laughs> you got to remember. So, but you know what I'm talking about with Thermopylae? No. Oh, sh- I haven't seen the 300. Wait, come on. You're not going <laughs> to do this to me with 300. I'm so sorry. I have, n- I don't know anything about, I like, I know the gist of the Battle of Thermopylae because I've seen clips of the 300 and i've seen people on tiktok be like um (laughs) would you believe that 300 spartans can fight off yeah i i get that but like i don't actually know what the battle of thermopylae is and i know you're probably going to be like okay immediately divorced right after this episode not immediately mind you not immediately you'll give me some time to study first right yeah yeah and after the exam he'll make his divorce or stay married decision right yeah okay that's fair i accept these terms (laughs) I'm re- I'm a really good test taker. Like, I'll forget by next week. But anyway, where were we? So, I don't know the Battle of Thermopylae. <laughs> for anyone that does, imagine it like the Battle of Thermopylae, where only a limited number of forces are able to approach at any given time. So what this did is it severely blunted the potential damage that the Japanese could do to the Americans in the situation. So Taffy 3's first contact with Kurita's force was a visual sighting of anti-aircraft fire that was to the northwest which was immediately followed by a surface search radar hit and intercepted Japanese voice transmissions. Shortly after, Kurita then ordered his force to engage, and Yamato, which was then followed by the other Japanese ships, opened fire. Later, Taffy 3 personnel were going to remark about how there were these brightly colored geysers that kept on erupting out of the water here that was throwing up from the salvos of the near misses, which the what this was caused by was uh, they had spotting dye that was added to the Japanese shells. Why dye? Because like, here's here's actually a really big important detail. This is something that messes with a lot of people. You know how we talked about stuff with radar and with all yeah. the different stuff and like the technology. Do you remember when we went to visit the um, the USS Wyoming? Con- 
Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Why did I say Wyoming? Oh, yeah, Wyoming class. Um, so they when we went to the USS Wisconsin, one of the things that it was talked about on it is how advanced its sighting and targeting equipment was. The Japanese didn't have that. They so may they have used had, dye. They may have had bigger guns. They may have had so much more anti-aircraft guns. But even though technically the range of their guns was bigger. They couldn't see. They couldn't see. It was less accurate because they didn't have proper targeting equipment to be able to identify. So they just get out there and start yeeting shells in that general direction. Yes. And then you would have a guy who would be standing up there with like binoculars binoculars. watching where it hits and it's it's colored so you can see it erupt out. And then they would call out like directions for where they would then be firing next. Do you think there's like a mod for um, World of Warships for this? Just asking for me. I mean, to be fair, everything in World of Warships <laughs> is like that. sight in that general direction. Can I hit it? Probably not. Yeet. <laughs> okay. That is crazy. Yes. Like, I didn't actually... That is huge. That is a huge technological difference, mind you. That, that's what means, like, let's say that they had a range. I can't even remember what the actual range okay, on I was. Okay, I just did the entire... Okay, when I'm listening to a podcast and the co-host goes, that is crazy, that's insane, I immediately roll my eyes. But, like, no, it actually is. It's a really big deal when it comes to technology. It's a very big difference that makes. So, the, the, that's what's going on. You had these brightly colored geysers that were erupting out of the ground. And then by this time, uh, Sprague, uh, or was it Sprague? It was Sprague is actually his name. So Sprague had Sprague. Sprague? Sprague? Spraggy? Spraguey. 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 <laughs> I don't know. It's Sprague. Sprague. So Sprague had his carriers come about, and then initially they followed a more southeasterly course. His destroyers then went and generated a smoke screen, and Johnston in the lead, which is one of the ships, began firing at their pursuers. And at this point... Taffy 3's sister units, which was Taffy 1 and Taffy 2, they were around 25 nautical miles to the southeast, and they then adopted a southeasterly course to go to them. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Although its escorts were bound to protect these slow, unarmored escort carriers, Taffy 2, which was commanded by Rear Admiral Felix B. Stump, he was able to support Taffy 3 with its aircraft as the battle would progress. Now, Taffy 1, which was then commanded by Thomas L. Sprague, he also launched some aircraft, but there was going to be a bunch of challenges to this all throughout the day as time would go on. You see, Sprague had launched fighters and bombers which although they were armed for their original close air support role, like that's what they were supposed to be doing, they weren't designed necessarily to be doing this stuff with like 
an actual naval battle. They were supposed to be assisting with the islands and all the movements that were going on in the Philippines. And now they're taking on a whole section of the Japanese Navy. So they could at least from this harass the pursuers and give the impression that there was a lot more, um, there was a lot more enemies and firepower than was actually there. Think of it like this, think of it like this. You see planes in the distance, right? The impression that you're going to have here is not, hmm, those planes are the ones specifically designed in order to take out my ships. It's no, oh shit, there are planes in the distance. So what they're doing is giving the impression that they're more equipped and ready and able to respond than they actually were. That's really smart. That That was the idea of it. So they would at least be able to harass and do more. So Sprague also began to change course towards the south, but then developments would ultimately force him to start heading more southwest, which overall then led to the entire thing of like the Battle of Samar to look kind of like an inverted fish hook as they're curving around. This You'll then, probably need to put a picture of that because I have no idea. Honestly, I would need a whole series of charts to explain this because it's not just like what we're talking about. Yeah, charts and graphs, everything to show this because it the naval battles are something that are rarely just an instantaneous thing it's not like you show okay here's a field and then here's the little troop movements like what you would show it's all right here's this thing that is spread out over many 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 miles as they're moving over the course of the day days or week or weeks you never really know like it could take it could take so much longer right so when you had this all occurring at 7 16 in the morning And then again at 7.42, you had Sprague order his screens, like the screening ships, to carry out torpedo attacks. So the three destroyers, you had Johnston, which was in the lead, you had the Hearman, and you had the Hull. They carried out the first attacks. You had the Johnston, which managed to damage the heavy cruiser, the Kumano, with a torpedo hit, but it was then heavily damaged by the 6- and 14-inch shells that were fired at it. Hull then fired at and missed the battleship Congo, and was also then hit multiple times. And for a time, she was boxed in by the Japanese battleships and the cruisers, all of which from all sides were then firing at her. That's nightmare material. Because right. they're these are destroyers. So they're Why these were they fast in the middle? Li- because they're fast little zippy ships. The whole point of these is like hit and run tactics. So they went in they got bo- they went in there to get boxed. They, they pretty much that's all they could do. I would absolutely go the other if you're fast, just go the other way. Do you remember seeing my video just when I did the around. World of Warships episode and it was me as the destroyer just laughing like a maniac while doing drifts? Yeah, and but that's kind of what they had to do. But couldn't they just turn around? Just go the other way. They they wouldn't their their task, their purpose was to escort the much slower aircraft carriers. If the destroyers which would be able to escape escaped, it would have left the much more valuable aircraft carriers behind which would have been destroyed. And that would be abandoning their posts and it would be bad. Bad. I mean, everyone. if you abandon your posts for personal um, preservation is that yes really? okay well that's why I'm not in the military <laughs> so so right um, Sprague ordered a second attack right and then you have the Hearman which launches torpedoes of the Japanese heavy cruiser the Haguru but she evaded them and then fired multiple salvos of destroyer but luckily all of these missed so moving beyond the Japanese cruiser division, the Hearman came upon the battleship Kongo, the Yamato, and the Nagato, and then fired her remaining torpedoes as well as the five-inch guns all at the Congo. The destroyer then came about and moved to a screening station that was on the starboard flank of the carriers. Despite the intensity of the Japanese fire, the only damage aboard 
was caused by shell fragments. It managed to pretty much dodge everything else. And so these determined, very aggressive attacks of the three, mind you, three U.S. destroyers, coupled with all of the ongoing air attacks uh, on his ships, everything around it. There was so much noise and confusion that was going on that Kurita genuinely believed in his assessment that he was facing a strong carrier task force. This wasn't like a little force. Like there is no reason for something so small to be so aggressive there. And considering all the aircraft that we're seeing around us, this has to be something bigger. It has to be an actual full force. No, it was just like, um, Taffy three was a very angry Chihuahua. They were just, they were, I think they just knew that they would die. So they might as well put up their biggest fight. It pretty much could. It was, it's that thing of what happens when they talk about, say a cornered rat, like nothing fights harder than a cornered dog or a cornered rat. Like it will take on anything that is like three, four, 10 times its size. I mean, what are their options? If they can't turn around and run, I guess they might as well try. Yeah. And so the fact that that second torpedo attack was immediately launched would only make him think like, yeah, this is definitely something bigger. So Sprague then ordered his screen to make that second torpedo attack shortly after his destroyer escorts were also engaged. So Samuel B. Roberts then joined Hearman and also the hole, which was by this time pretty badly damaged, along with Dennis, John C. Butler, and the Raymond, which followed. They all were attacking individually. And these were all destroyers. These were, well, no, because you have the destroyers and then you have the, uh, the, the, not escort carriers. What is, what is the word that I'm looking for in Aircraft here? Aircraft carriers? Well, let me know. It was the, no. it, was, it was the escorts. Okay. It was the escorts here. So, um. Destroyers you, and escorts. Yeah, the destroyers and you had the escorts here that were going in. And so they faced not only the Japanese cruiser division, <clears throat> or cruiser division, which mind you, again, is a much bigger ship. Like that's a much bigger classification they're going up against, but also most of the Japanese destroyers. So they are way heavily outnumbered. So the Japanese and the U.S. ships are zigzagging around each other. They're exchanging gunfire. They're firing off torpedoes. All of this is the ship equivalent of a melee, right? They're not dueling at each other from long distances as they're kind of sailing by. No, they're like weaving in and out each other, firing guns. Imagine, if you will, if you had some guys who were in a parking lot with their cars, right? And they have guns and they're just doing drive-bys at each other. But just the boat version. Imagine bumper cars that don't actually bump into each other with guns. But it's guns. just guns. Yes. That's terrifying. That is what they were doing right here. I don't... Listen, it's cool and all, but I have so much anxiety for these people. Yes, they probably really did too. I'm not kidding about that. (laughs) So the Johnston was then able to lay such heavy fire on the Japanese cruisers, the Haguro and the Tone, that they reported her as a heavy cruiser. So they genuinely thought that this ship, which was much smaller and weaker, they like, this is like the equivalent of someone, if I got into a fight and they're like, oh yeah, no, that six foot five, 250 pound muscly behemoth was definitely going to kick my ass. And no, it's just my 5'11 kind of average self. They just walked into the bar that day. But they have this impression that it's so much bigger and aggressive than what it actually is. So they report that no, it is a heavy cruiser. And by 8.20 a.m., the U.S. escorts now had rejoined the escort carriers. They laid down smoke, and then they proceeded on the task unit's southwesterly course to get out of there. Shortly after, 
at 8.30 in the morning, the hole, which was badly damaged before, was now dead in the water. It started to list to the port. All of the engineering spaces were flooded, and her first magazine was on fire. So, Hull began settling by the stern, and her ship, or not her ship, her crew, then had to abandon ship. Do they know if everyone lived, or... Oh, no, people definitely died, but it's like others did get rescued. That's something that, because, we'll we'll get to that. How do you get rescued in a battle? Like, dude, does the other side stop shooting so you can just, like... No. No, absolutely not. No, you do not. And the Japanese definitely would not be in the situation, either. The Japanese were famous for setting booby traps on, like, dead bodies to get, like, like they would kill an American soldier or leave them wounded and then booby trap it so that when people would go to help them, they would blow up. Why would you? I'm oh, literally going to cry. Yeah, no, they did horrible things in there. Like, I, I've said this before in here. The, the, there is a lot to be okay, said I'm about. Like tearing up. That is so sad. Okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to describe you, you tell all me that? Okay, yeah, just don't, a lot don't, worse. don't do it. It's fine. So. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Before Sprague had even ordered that initial torpedo attack, the escort carriers themselves were under fairly heavy fire from their pursuers. And so after you had this brief rain and also the U.S. air attacks, the Japanese battleships, as well as the heavy cruisers, they started to catch up. Because despite the fact that these were heavy ships, carriers are not fast. Like, at all. They really are not. So they started to catch up. And the enemy destroyers were also now approaching from starboard. And then, moreover, there was a Japanese heavy cruiser division that had managed to overhaul the carrier's formation port flank, intending to cross the T and cut it off. What that means in crossing the T, for anyone that is confused in this, is that if the ship is going forward, forward just gonna and the other one is going to cut across. Because yeah. Yeah, exactly, because then if you can move all your guns I've over to one side, I've played warships. I know. Okay, perfect. Then you do know. Awesome. So they're, they're hoping to cross the T and cut things off. And that pushed Sprague to have to head towards the southwest and forced him to launch his aircraft with the added disadvantage of having wind go against him. The U.S. aircraft were then ordered to target the heavy cruiser division to port off the carriers. Taffy 2, which was to the southeast, also then launched aircraft at Kurita's force and the center force was going to remain under relatively uncoordinated but rather heavy attacks by U.S. aircraft, essentially throughout the entire engagement. This wasn't something that was a... Not coordinated, not, that's not the right word. I mean, it kind of is the right word, but to use it in different terms, this wasn't something where they were 
choosing which targets to individually target, if that makes sense. What they did is that they essentially went, guys, anything in that direction with a Japanese flag, shoot and or bomb it. I mean, they didn't really have a lot of time to plan. No, normally in this situation, when you're launching an attack on an enemy force, you're going to be looking at the key targets that you want to take out. A specific battleship, the enemy's carrier, something that is a valuable target, or if not valuable, something that would be an easy target to take out and isolate it. In this case, it wasn't about destroying the enemy fleet. It was about harassing them to create as much chaos as they possibly could in order to drive them away. Or hold them off, at least. That's like, that's the idea. So, with its course starting to turn to the southwest, the escort carriers were then taken under Japanese fire from both the north and also from the east. And as the range was reduced, the carriers began firing the single five-inch guns that they had under their fantails, like the stuff at the rear, at the pursuers. Like, you have these ships, which have five, 14, 18-inch guns in the case of the Yamato, like huge guns with huge range. And then you just have the carriers with these little guns in the back. They're like, pew, 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 go away, please, pew, pew. And they're just trying to like drive them away. They did their best. Oh, they're doing their best because it's all they can do. They have nothing else. They can just fire their guns and hope to God that the aircraft drive them away. And so although this fire really had no real effect on the Japanese, Cullinan Bay and White Plains were actually able to score hits on the Japanese heavy cruisers, which significantly, there was a chance that White Plains hit on Chokai, and it caused enough damage aboard it that it caused it to fall out of formation, slow down, which made it an individual isolated target to then be hit by aircraft, which is good because the closer these ships are to one another in their formation, the more defensible they are against aircraft because they can concentrate anti-aircraft fire. But if a ship starts to drift away out of formation, think of it like wolves targeting a deer that has been uh, wounded. That's the idea of it. And what then happened is that as more and more smoke was being laid out, they tried to get out of there. But given the course of the wind direction, it didn't really do anything to hide the carriers. Destroyers were, I think I said this before, they were laying down smoke screens. So when they lay down smoke screens, the idea of it is that this is going to cloud and protect them, you know? But the wind was literally taking the smoke and just blowing it away. So all their defenses that they were trying to put out didn't really help anything. So all were ended up getting hit by Japanese shells. But the enemy's gunnery was not good at all. They may have been hitting, but the full effect of their armor-piercing shells was pretty much wasted because they were firing these shells that were designed to take out heavily armored targets on targets that didn't have armor. I know, I can see the look on your face here. There's a specific reason for anyone that may not understand the physics of it why that is a bit of a problem. So the way that armor-piercing shells are designed, and there's a lot of different variations for how they're designed, but... I think it also applies to people who don't know how armor-piercing shells are designed. Yes. So the way that it works for many of these is that it takes a significantly heavier resistance for these shells to, like, detonate in the first place. What oftentimes would happen, right, is that you would have a shell, if it's armor-piercing, and it shoots at an unarmored target. Imagine that it hits the target, 
it goes directly through without actually exploding. It's the equivalent of what would happen if someone threw a bomb at you and the bomb literally just went through your body and didn't explode. So it just explodes on the other side and it... It just never explodes because it's armor piercing. It was designed to penetrate armor, but if there was no armor, there's no resistance to actually trigger it. Ooh. Oh. Exactly. Okay. That took me a while. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. But see, that's, that's like the point here. It's not something that people really consider about, but that's why there's different types of ammunition that would be used. So again, all were hit, but the armor piercing shells didn't really do anything. It was just a massive waste when it was being fired at the unarmored targets. But you had the Gambier Bay, which was on the exposed port flank of the formation. That began to receive a bunch of Japanese hits, including from the Congo at 8, 10 a.m., which then started fires on her flight and hangar decks. And then she received hits below the waterline in her forward port engine room, which caused it to flood. That then reduced the escort's carrier speed, causing her to drop behind the formation. Johnston went and attempted to draw fire away from it, but the Japanese, seeing that there was a wounded target here, concentrated on the carrier, and it was dead in the water and started to sink by 8.40 a.m., which, of course, meant that the crew had to abandon it just around 10 minutes later. It is... They're trying to escape. But the Japanese are right there. So as the task force proceeded towards the southwest, you had the Samuel B. Roberts, the Heerman, and the Johnston, which continued to engage the pursuing Japanese heavy cruisers. But shortly before the hull sank, Sprague ordered John C. Butler and Dennis to take up stations on the escort carrier's starboard quarter, where they had been joined by the Raymond, interposing them between the carriers and the Japanese. Now at this point, with the exception of the John C. Butler, the escorts, I mean, they were, they were out of torpedoes. They really had nothing left at this point. And given the dispositions of the two forces, no one really knew if it was going to be advantageous to fire anything. Like, they didn't even know if trying to do anything was even possible. I am so stressed. Yeah, and this what this ended up being is that the destroyers and the destroyer escorts had to resort to these little, like, darting attacks of the Japanese cruisers while firing their guns. Basically, think about that thing that I was talking about with, like, the church parking lot and drive-bys. And just cars just going around firing little guns at each other. Except if before the drivers had been using 50 cals that were mounted on the back of their trucks, like technicals. I don't know where I'm going with this comparison. I'm thinking of like the technicals out of the Middle East where you'd see the Toyota trucks and they would have like the mounted machine guns on the back. Imagine that that ran out of bullets and so now it's just a guy with a pistol that is like just trying to shoot out of the back of a window or something. That's the equivalent of where they're at right now. Does the book play out like this? Like the trip book? I mean, yeah. Yeah, it, well, is it, it like it a goes, play-by-play? It's like a play-by-play going into all the personal accounts because I am oh, trying to tell accounts. the overall story, but when you're going into the stuff in the chirp book, it's like telling the personal accounts of the individuals that were involved in it and like the actual personal anecdotes, which is something that really cool. I figured one of the best ways I could go about doing this is just telling the overall story, but if you want a personal in-depth look at it, you need to look at the book. Okay, this is something I would never be able to read because I'm pretty sure... Is this the book? Yes. Okay, so I, I knew it was on your shelf. And I wanted to read it, but if it's the actual personal accounts, I will never be able to read this. Yes, which is one of the reasons why I thought it would because be so cool here. just listening to this story has me like... Oh, it, it's it's a very tenuous subject. It is a last stand. That's kind of the point. Uh, okay, so, continue. So they're doing all these zigzag maneuvers here, right? And they have a smoke screen that has partially shielded Sprague's carriers. But the escorts get hit really hard to the point that 
you don't think that they're going to be able to fight back, but they do. They were still able to fight until around 8.50 a.m. The Samuel B. Roberts received her first serious hit, which entered into her hull under the waterline and knocked out her fire room, which was then followed by more hits. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. What then followed that is a massive explosion that was caused by several 14-inch shells that tore open a 30-foot-long gash in the destroyer's escort port side. Yeah, that, that just obliterated the second engine room. It ruptured the fuel tanks, it started fires, all power and communication just completely gone, and then the Samuel B. Roberts was abandoned at 9.10 a.m. Which ship survives? It's like a battle royale. And you're like, which, what, what, what is the last standing contender? Some of them did, but it was a very contentious thing. So Samuel B. Roberts was abandoned at 9, 10 a.m. And then her commanding officer, which was a guy by the name of Lieutenant Commander Robert Copeland. Well, he was awarded the Navy Cross for his actions. At 8.45, just before the Roberts waterline was hit, the Japanese light cruiser, the Yahagi, as well as several destroyers, they launched a a torpedo attack on Taffy 3, which was then repulsed by Johnston, which was furiously just firing as fast as it could. It was strafing, it was running around, it was doing, I say running, it was piling, it was going as quickly as it could, just around trying to hit as much as it could. But that all being said, It was as fast as it could because the Johnston was limping by on a single engine and was hit several more times as the Japanese destroyers concentrated their fire on her. Because of that, her other engines got knocked out. Her top sides were just in complete shambles, no power communications, and it was dead in the water at 9.45 a.m. and was then aboard... Ordered, ordered to be abandoned. Ordered to be abandoned. Not not ordered. Not ordered. I feel like I'm adopting some Michigan slang there or something. Warder. It was ordered to be abandoned just like five minutes later. And thus, Johnston's commanding officer, Commander Ernst E. Evans, didn't survive it. But as a result of his action, was awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. The Japanese destroyer squadron attack was to be the enemy's last offensive action. Because now, it's actually coming to an end. You see, Taffy 3 might not have survived if Curtis ships had not been under air attack during the entire engagement. So, as we talked about before, what was happening in the skies was that Rear Admiral Stump's Taffy 2 was engaging things all over the course of this battle. It was augmenting Taffy 3's aircraft 
with their own aircraft. So even though they didn't have additional ships, they did have more aircraft that was able to actually support them. So were them. they just over the Japanese like center, center force, central yeah, force? Remember how I said that it wasn't like targeting individual ships, like isolated targets? But it was just going point. everywhere just to give the facade that there were more people. Exactly. So earlier that morning, just after the Japanese forces had been sighted by Taffy 3, Stump had his available TBM Avengers rearmed with torpedoes, 500 pound bombs, anything that was actually capable, like they went back after the initial strike and rearmed with stuff that could actually damage the capital ships, like the bigger, badder ships. And so as Taffy 3 was being pursued, Stump closed the distance to Sprague's task unit and was then able to launch three different strikes during the battle's 90 minute duration. At one point, Taffy 2 sighted Japanese ships, which temporarily diverted from their pursuit of Sprague and fired on her destroyers. But rather than targeting specific vessels, as I said, Sprague ordered his air group to just try and cripple as many Japanese ships as possible. Doesn't matter how big they were, doesn't matter where they were, just do everything you can all at once. That's it. Full stop. Go. So Taffy 2 and Taffy 3's aircraft contributed to the sinking of heavy cruisers Chokai, the Chikuma, the Suzuya, all of which received some degree of damage from surface action. But of course, the aircraft is something that would really mess them up. Additionally, aircraft damaged most of the other Japanese combatants. And when that is combined with Sprague's smoke screens, this really affected the Japanese gunnery because, again, two reasons. Remember how they did everything based off of sight? If they're constantly being attacked by overhead aircraft... They won't be able to see through the binoculars. They won't be able to see what targets they're hitting. Because they're going to be looking out for the aircraft that are constantly harassing them. And they also have the smoke screens that are like causing everything to be harder to hit in the first place. And so after... Uh, Kurita's last remaining scout aircraft was shot down shortly before 9 a.m., he was really unaware of how close anything was. He did not have any other information that was telling him how weak his enemy was, where they were, what num- how many numbers they still had left, whether there were any reinforcements coming. He had no information to work off of. And when you are a military officer and you have no information to work off of, that is arguably the most dangerous thing that you could possibly be in. And as a result, he called off the attack. He called off the attack and just broke away. Center Force, which was still under air attack, began to just retrace its course back towards the northwest. So Taffy 3 survived. So they survived. Whoever was left. I mean. Okay, this is so sad, though. Like, here's the It thing. was a brutal engagement. It's, it's amazing. It's so, um, what's the word? Honorable. But also at the same time, when you just think about all of these men from two different countries, from two different yeah. walks of life, just like trying to kill each other, because if they don't kill the other person, they're not going to survive. It just makes me really sad. And that's why I would be so awful if the world ever went to World War Three. I'd just be a mess. Yep. Mm, and also the, the world keeps trying. Yep. <laughs> that's my little sidebar. I'm like, why? <laughs> I'm not good. At, like, it makes me so sad. Yep, and well, there's uh, so many it's more really stories. Amazing. I can't tell you half it's the stories really honorable. from this. It's really brave. Obviously, both sides, you know, were brave. They were yep. doing what they had to do, but it's just sad. Oh, absolutely. No, I completely understand. I mean, the, the, the task force here, they didn't really have long to have any kind of respite. 
because already when you were looking earlier that morning at 740, Taffy 1 was in the process of launching aircraft to support Taffy 3, and it had been attacked by six land-based Japanese planes from the recently made Special Attack Air Corps. Do you, do you know what that signifies here when it comes to history? I have it right there in the notes if you want to look at it. The first official kamikaze unit. Beginning there in 1944, you have the kamikazes that start. The USS Santee was hit by one, which caused her flight and hangar deck fires, and other Taffy 1 escort carriers experienced near misses. The kamikaze attacks, which, mind you, were a very new tactic, this halted or slowed any additional operations after 10 a.m., because this was brand new. They didn't really know how to handle it at first. And land-based kamikaze aircraft would attack Taffy 3 just before 11 a.m. The Kitkin Bay, Fanshawe Bay, White Plains, they shot down or drove off more of their attackers. But one of the Japanese planes, which was already damaged by White Plains anti-aircraft fire, dove directly into the St. Lowe. And the aircraft, which was a Mitsubishi A6M, or the, you know, the Zero, like that famous Japanese aircraft, the Zero, it crashed straight through St. Lowe's flight deck into her hangar deck, and the explosion of the ordnance that was inside it just blew the ship's deck, like the flight deck, right off in the elevator. <laughs> like, the, the, remember, these were unarmored targets. Remember what we talked about with armored-piercing shells? How they go straight through? Yeah. These planes were basically high-explosive shells. So they hit, penetrate slightly, and then Boom. Remember what I was saying about this just being really sad? Yeah. I think I see it differently from you because a lot of people are like, oh, my God, it was so amazing. It was super courageous. And then it's just everybody was dying. Yeah. So the St. Lowe sank just 30 minutes later after the attack. And follow-on kamikaze targets would go to, or not targets, follow-on kamikazes would target other aircraft carriers. One hit the Kalanen Bay's flight deck, but the fire was then extinguished. Her afterstack was also hit, and by 11.30 a.m., the Japanese air attacks ceased, and the task force was finally able to concentrate on assessing damage and searching for survivors. So remember all those guys from the whole, the Gambier Bay, the Roberts, the Johnson, etc. They were able to actually send ships out after that for where these crews were that were in the water. To and see actually if anyone was just floating. To, to actually pick some people up. So out. people did survive. I mean, obviously people did survive because these are personal accounts of the Correct. last stand. But it's just they really just insane. decided to pull out kamikaze. They were like, oh man, we're losing. So you know what? I mean, I get it, too, because I guess in a sense, that's what the ships were doing, those little zippy destroyers. They're like, we might die anyway, so we might as well do our best. Yep. I get it. In their case, it was, honestly, it was bad. People may not understand this thing for history, but other than the initial attacks, the first kamikaze attacks were successful. Like, you see it right here. The first actual kamikaze attacks were successful. But then people learned to expect it, and they figured out how but to as counter. as soon as they knew that kamikaze attacks were now a thing they failed horribly after so they were just and they just kept on doing it again and again and again well if you're if violence is not solving your problems you're just not using enough of it what do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history queen's podcast 
Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures, for instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Yeah, but in their case, they use violence stupidly. Yeah, but the thing, I don't know. I feel like I'd be less emotional if I had enough sleep. Fair. Fair. Even now, I've been fighting trying to yawn through this whole... I say that, and then the moment that I do, I yawn. Why would you remind yourself you needed to yawn? Because you reminded me from lack of sleep. This is really cool. I'm going to listen to this entire book and cry a lot. So brace yourself for the next day and a half. Yeah, that's happening. The crazy thing is that in the end, the American forces actually survived. This was a really big deal. Their initiative, the aggressiveness, the heroism that they demonstrated, all of this stuff done by Taffy 3 combined with the U.S. naval air attacks this whole thing really limited the Japanese's ability to understand what was going on. And then literally the pure dumb luck of the timing, the fact that in the beginning this occurred because it was the transition between the nighttime and the daytime cycle, all of these factors came in in one perfect storm to just lead to the chaos that allowed the Americans to survive this. And then what would happen afterwards is that with this single engagement with an enemy that was so much smaller with a majority of what was left of the available strong forces of the Japanese fleet, they weren't really able to do much like this. This was their, one of their final big hurrahs to actually do anything for the Japanese fleet. Yeah. For the Japanese fleet. They were the bigger fleet. No, they weren't. Not, I mean, not, not in, in this case. Oh, in, in this, this case, yes. Case. In this case, yes. They were the bigger fleet. It was something that in the end, they took more damage than they actually caused. It was absolutely not worth it for them. And because it destroyed so much of it, or at least damaged so much of it, what it did is remove the Japanese's offensive capabilities for the duration of the war. The, the, thing, sur- the thing about this is just... <sighs> Uh, continue i'm sorry basically the surviving fleet could not really engage in any other fights so basically they took out a lot they took out a lot they did more damage psychologically than anything else because what the remaining forces became was more of a fleet in being so rather than an active attack force it was more so the threat of the japanese being there that would be a cause for concern but besides that Kind of like Pearl Harbor. Yeah, it was never again the threat that it was in early 1944. So for anyone that is confused on that, a fleet in being, what it means is that it is a fleet that just by it existing, a ship that by the fact that it exists, it is a threat. It is, it's kind of like the... um, Because they don't know what it's going to do. Exactly. It's the ship version of a nuke, It's done so much. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. You you know they have it and you're just concerned. Correct. But it was never going to be the threat that it was in the beginning. It was just now reserved for a threat that was possibly in the back of their mind versus a present threat here and now. But that, this was 1944. So yep. theoretically, some of th- these people are still alive. Yeah. That's 
I don't know if anyone is actually. Blind, I don't know if they are, but they could be. That's the thing. I I think after that much drama, I wouldn't be alive. I'd yeah. be like, mm, I've had, I've seen what I needed to see. But that is the story of the last stand of the Tin Can Sailors. I hope that you all enjoyed today's episode. Please make sure to pick up the book, which is, again, linked here in the description. It is only like $3 here for at least the next several days that this uh, this video slash podcast episode goes out. And message me on Instagram. He doesn't check his DMs. But message me on Instagram whether you liked the book and also how disturbed you were because I would like to talk. I try to get stuff on Instagram, but I get he so gets, he gets many. Spammed. He gets spammed. And There's like, so much spam. I don't get spam because I specifically tell people to not DM me. But if you're DMing me about the book, I'd be like, yes, let's talk. I have a lot of feelings. I do have a lot of feelings. Oh, no, naturally. I feel like everyone is listening to this. and They're like, why are you so emotional? I don't know. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I will see you all next time. Oh, before we go, we actually do need to do our family history because we're supposed to do one after every episode and we've been awful about it. So let's just cut here and I'll find one. Okay. Okay, so who's the family history from? Well, I'm really glad that you reminded me here. And I actually feel bad that this now is coming here um, immediately after we were talking about something to where you were feeling sad. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. We're, uh, we're going to get into a little bit of one because I kind of read through and skimmed through this and... Brace yourself, Gabby. Okay. I've said this before when it comes to people and the stories that get shared to us by our listeners, but history really is not clean. It's not. And everyone does have a story to tell, and we were all kind of involved in something in one way or another. So this comes from a guy called at least Rate. Or if I scroll down to the bottom here and check his name, yeah, Rate Parnoja, which I'm probably been, uh, butchering the name here but he's estonian so i apologize right 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 i'm gonna call it right you can put it in the comment section below here if you somehow end up seeing this as to what it actually is i apologize i'll email him back. yeah email him back let's see if we can get the pronunciation going but it says hey i wrote yesterday already to tell the story of my family name and i kept contemplating whether to tell the story of my grandfather as well but i don't want to drag things too long since then i remembered more details and other happenings with him I realized his story is probably instead a great one to illustrate people's places in war and how complicated each of our stories might be, which, again, it is. In the back of my mind, there was also your comment to the listener who told the story about the Winchester rifle on the mantelpiece. I remember when we actually did that one. And I think it was his forefather who helped fascists escape to Argentina, and that being sort of shameful. So without further ado, I won't go into too many details, because first, these stories have come to me through my mother, who is, to this day, regretful that she did not write down these tales when she was younger, and my grandfather when he was still alive. He died shortly before I was born, so I never actually knew the man myself, but I did learn the man's life, kind of like with the movies. His name was Oswald Vat, and he was born in 1918 in Tartu, and that was soon to be Estonia. I don't have any details of his early life, but his story mostly picks up speed with the Second World War and the Nazi occupation of Estonia after the Soviet Union retreated to Russian territory again. The retreat was too chaotic to organize any mobilizations, but some men were forced into the Red Army early. When the Nazis came, they recruited everybody that they could, and that's how Oswald ended up being in the Wehrmacht. I don't have any details about the unit or the regiment or anything, but like most Estonian men at the time, it was a choice between the Nazis and the communists. 
and people did what they had to in order to survive. As far as I know, he wasn't implicated in any, in any atrocities, but of course I have no idea what actually happened in those years. I would just like to add that I don't condone the behavior of the Nazis or the communists or anything. It's just this man's story. Why I say that is that he wasn't involved in the out-and-out out genocide is because his unit was. Again, I can't remember the details of the village that this happened in, but one night, his unit pulls into a village where they're treated pretty nicely. They're offered shelter, food, etc. And when they decide to rest there, they of course still post sentries in order to keep watch. My grandfather was on sentry duty, but after two of the next shifts after him didn't show up, he just left his post and went back to the village. What he found was that the village had betrayed the unit's position to the Red Army and that they had attacked while Oswald's unit was asleep. Having machine guns against rifles, the Nazis easily returned fire and only a few of them had actually been killed versus wiping out their attackers. As revenge, they killed everyone, including the animals in that village and also in two of the next villages that were over, I believe. After this heinous crime against humanity and all that is good in this world, they made a commemorative tattoo, which all who per had participated in the slaughter got. Fast forward to Nuremberg, and my grandfather was, I think, the only one of them not to be executed, because even though his story was known to the Allies, not having the tattoo was proof enough that he wasn't with them, and thus he was not sentenced there. His second story is also from the Second World War, that being when the Germans started to retreat, then in the ensuing chaos, he managed to get a hold of some destination papers. I think they're called that, like documents which allow you through checkpoints in the rear and so on, in order to prove that you're supposed to be headed there. One of the designating officers uh, where they had, <clears throat> sorry, one of the designating officers field, they put Major Munihunik, which this in Estonian means Muni, cock, and Hunik, pile. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. So he had a fake name that was Cockfile. I'm sorry, that's a hilarious little bit tidbit to have in here at the very end of all this. So in the vast chaos of a retreating broken German army, no one had a clue how many majors there were at that time and who exactly were serving where. So that's how he managed to get himself to Austria, not to get slaughtered by the Red Army. There, they even managed to cross the Swiss border at one point, a few miles into Swiss territory, where they would not have been extradited to the Allies, but they were turned around by a suspicious German patrol that pointed them back towards Austria, where they were taken prisoner by the Germans on suspicion of defection. But before any sentencing or investigation the Germans could do, they capitulated, and he spent some time in jail. Not sure where or how he was prosecuted, but probably in Austria, I know he made his driver's license there or got his driver's license there after he got out, but that being before he came home. When he finally came back home to what is now the Soviet or to what was then the Soviet Union in the beginning of the 50s, 
I believe he worked as a milk truck driver. He was a hard worker, and he did overtime all the time and so on. So the Soviets really were happy with him, and they loved their medals. So his bosses noticed his diligence and his hard work, so they wanted to give him the Worker's Hero Medal, which came with benefits, like being on the short list to be able to get a car or apartments. Yeah, for anyone who is a little bit confused right now for what that could possibly mean. I am so confused. Okay, so the gist of it is, you know how in a capitalist society you buy a car or you take out a loan to buy a car and you you buy the car because it's available because the supply and demand has made it be there? Yes. So in a command economy that the Soviets had, there is no supply and demand. There is Everybody a, has a demand, but there is no supply. Yeah. So the supply is what is demanded by the state. So every, you'd be allotted basically a number to, you're going to get a car or be able to buy a car. In like 15 years. But yeah, some people waited like one or two years. Some people waited 20 years to be able to get something. It it was a really bad system, but this is something that if you got a medal like this, if you were a political hero and you were in like with the elites, then that meant that uh, you would be on the short list to be able to get these things. But the issue was, is that he would have to play the political game. And the issue with that was that this was something that you had to be a part of the party. The Communist Party. And this is a problem because with the Iron Curtain, there was no record of him serving in the Nazi army. But if you even did the slightest dig into his past, you would have found that whole uh, serving with the Nazis thing, which would have earned him a one-way trip to Siberia and not a medal. So he ducked out of that instead saying that he wasn't really into politics. He was just a simple milk truck driver. The second after war story, which is the first time I can say this is 100% true and I know is because I heard it from several sources, one of which is my mom. But true, but she was actually at the trial for this. So he was a bit of a ladies man, to put it politely, a man whore, to put it not so politely. So I'm thinking this family history doesn't go on YouTube. This is fun. No, this is, I think I this would think be fine. I don't think it should be posted. At one point, he was having relations with a random woman he had picked up on the road, but hard worker as he was, he kept driving the truck. Gotta make deadlines and so on. This is the Amazon truck driver story. <laughs> all You know, like that video of someone like... Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking you know, about. Then the okay. guy lost his job. Yeah. So the woman was holding the wheel, but powered steering not really being a thing in the Soviet era. When she climaxed, she yanked the wheel, lost control of the truck, and it went through a fence on the side of the road and ran over seven cows that were grazing in the field. Okay, at least it was just cows. Okay. Any- Anyway, in the Soviet Union, cows and everything agricultural was state-owned, so it was not just some farmer's property he destroyed. It was state property, so he got seven years in prison, one for each cow. Honestly, this guy has been dodging so much, and the cows got him. So that was my grandfather. I think it's awesome that you're doing this and collecting all these stories from people. Even if you don't tell this in your podcast, I still had a great time remembering all of this and just contemplating our part in history. Like I said, this grandfather died before I ever knew him, but these stories make him feel way more real to me and a more three-dimensional character than my other grandfather, whom I did know and meet several times, but who was a very closed-off man living in a ranger's cottage in the woods and taking care of a small plot of land. I'm sure that he had amazing stories too, but unfortunately, they never really reached me. 
Anyways, this was a pretty long one, and I can only imagine how many of these letters you have to go through, and I sincerely wish you all the best. Right, Parnolja. That was we, a cool one. I mean, it, it, there was a lot in there. Um, <laughs> the man whore that ran over seven cows. We have so many family histories to go through, and we are so sorry for not oh. doing those for a while. So what happens is we record the podcast, we've signed to the producer, and then before we post it, we realize, oh, we didn't add a family history, but then it's like midnight, the day before. Because I'm so behind on everything when it comes to the YouTube videos, the, to- the shorts, the t- like everything. Like I'm constantly scrambling between yeah, one thing or the like other, constant. so I, mess, I forget so stuff. So we're going to get back on that because... We need to. It's fun. This proves to me right here that we need to get back in on it. And just because more so than what that guy was in. Some people get really upset about the family histories. Please remember, this is the past and we're not endorsing or everyone has a story to tell. There is always something there. And the it's life is wild. It is. So I appreciate all of the family histories we get because my family is wild, but then I'm like, wow, you're cooler or you're more chaotic or that is way more interesting. And I, I love seeing that. I, I think everybody's story, everybody has a different story. They have a different past. Exactly. Anyway, thank you for listening. I hope you all have a good rest of your day and I'll see you all next time. Goodbye, Bye. everyone.